So I'm very excited to be here today, and I, I just first wanted to say thank you to Phil, wherever he is, for last week. Uh, Phil preached to us about the importance of spiritual gifts, and a spiritual gift or a charismata in, in, in the Greek language is that every follower of Christ, when you surrender to him, God's Spirit comes to live inside you and really anoint you with a supernatural ability that's meant to be used in service of the church. And often it's things that you may, maybe are, already are good at uh, that just get accentuated. Uh, sometimes they're just brand new things that we discover about ourselves, and that when we do it, it might not feel, it feels pretty effortless to us, but other people notice it makes a huge impact on them for the good. And uh, I'm really thankful to Phil because he enabled me to use my own special ability that I utilize every year during deer hunting season. And that's the, the spiritual gift, I, maybe, I don't know, at least a special ability of keeping animals safe in the woods. And so I've got some pictures uh, to share for you. This is two weeks now. This is, this is one morning at sunrise, uh, making my coffee. And uh, I don't see a lot of deer in the woods, but I do see other cool things. I saw this really amazing meteor that morning, which, you know, I wouldn't have seen if I was, wasn't up at Odark 30. I saw, like, the biggest bull elk, like a six-by-six six that I've ever seen, uh, at least in the wild. But it was deer hunting season, so I just shouted at him, like, hey, come back next week when it's elk season. I'll be here. Uh, you can go to the next picture. I got to hang out with my son, Mark. Tramp through the mountains, the next one. I mean, you, you see cool stuff. There's just a beautiful tree that I stopped to take a picture of. And then that was a little scary. Can you see what those are? I mean, you see the bullet. But you see the tracks next to it? Yeah, we're just walking down the trail, very fresh deer tracks. We're like, oh, hey, you know. And then suddenly there's very fresh cat tracks. And uh, your assignment is to go home and see which kind of cat that you think that is. So that bullet right there is three inches long. So, you know, it's either a cougar, a lynx, or a bobcat. You let me know which one you think it is. <clears throat> we actually didn't see it, thank goodness. I'm glad about that. Um, and I think that's the last picture, right? Yeah. So really fun uh, just to be able to do that. So thank you, Phil, for, for freeing me up to be able to get away. Well, we're going to wrap up our series today for October. It's called Nailed It. And in this series, we've been exploring the unique ways in which God has created and made each one of us. And today's message really builds on Phil's sermon last week about spiritual gifts. And uh, I know many of you had a chance to fill out, or I hope you had a chance to fill out the spiritual gift inventory. If you didn't, uh, you can find a link for that, I believe, in the Friday emails that go out. You can contact us if you'd like to take that. Uh, hugely, hugely important for all Christians, because not only does it help build the church body, but when you deploy that gift, it also fills you with a sense of purpose and really joy. And so just kind of figuring out what that is in your life is a huge starting place, uh, not for yourself, or I mean, not only for yourself, but also for, for God and his people. And you'll notice that Phil has, has the spiritual gift of teaching. And as good as he is at preaching, you should see him in action in a classroom setting. Uh, he teaches our life and Bible classes each week. He did our confirmation class that we did last year. And when you see someone like Phil in action, you're like, yep, he's got the gift of teaching. And so we very much appreciate him. And I was struck by a couple things Phil said that I want to uh, kind of 
go over again. And these are quotes. The first one was, we are a charismatic, energetic servants to other members of the church. We are charismatic, energetic servants to other members of the church. And uh, he asked this question, how does the presence of God in my life affect other people in the church? That's a great question. Underline that, highlight it. How does the presence of God in my life affect other people in the church? And this is kind of a weird, like this whole pandemic era church thing that we've been experiencing uh, has kind of shifted the conversation, at least for me and I think other pastors. You know, the impact of you know, what Sunday morning looks like, um, how you experience other relationships within the church, uh, I think has kind of told church leaders that maybe we've had too big a focus on Sunday mornings. You know, it's like, well, if you can't deploy your spiritual gift here on, you know, Sunday between the hours of 9 and 11, you know, then it's like, oh, wait a second. That's been kind of off, and, and we need to retweak that. And we need to find other ways to deploy that gift that God has given us. However, if you're sitting there going, well, I don't know that my presence does affect the other you know, members of the body of Christ. Well, then that's, that's, that's really telling. That, or at least that should tell you something. And there are many, many reasons to just show up and sit on church on a Sunday morning or to watch online. You know, especially if you're, you're new to the area and you're just trying to find a church home. Um, maybe you're kind of uh, new to coming, you know, you're coming, returning to church. You've been away for whatever reason for a while. It could be that you're exploring faith in Christ for the first time. You just I mean, you just need to come and sit and soak it in for a while. But if all of your involvement is, is kind of just around the fringe, like dipping your toes in the water, and you can't ask, you can't, you're thinking like, well, how does my presence like, affect other people in the church? Well, the, the dark side of that is that maybe you're just consuming, and you've become a religious consumer. Phil's words on that was, uh, we've become consumers more than contributors. That was a great quote. And one thing that I've noticed, in addition to the spiritual gift conversation, but one thing I've noticed, especially during the pandemic, this has brought it out and really hit it home, is that as American Christians, we've grown used to watching others use their gifts. Like so much so that we consider that ministry and nothing else. And that's to our great detriment. You know, a few years ago, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to visit the Congo and Africa and see some of the water projects and things that our church has helped raise money for. And um, man, it, it, I mean, everybody goes to church there or is, or is at least part of a church. And, you know, African Christians have their own set of challenges just like we do, but one of them is not... Uh, sitting on the sidelines and watching church happen. You know, if, if there's usually one church for each village or area, and so if they don't like the music, tough luck, right? This is, your, this is your group of people. They can't just walk down the street and find something else that they like. And uh, we've created this thing here in the United States. Pastors are as much uh, responsible this you know, as others, you know, let's hire the marketing consultant, let's get 
the social media expert. Let's create this perception that our church is really cool and that you're going to want to come here. And, and, and it's all kind of done under the name of outreach. Like, hey, of course we want to fill every seat that we have with folks who aren't a part of church. And so it's, it's created this dark side of things that um, if you don't like it, then there's something else. There, the grass is greener over there. And it's really easy for us to just stay in this mode of consuming like, just like we are in the rest of our society, rather than actually contributing or getting in the game and helping deploy that gift that God has given you to help build His people, the local church. And um, that's how God intended the church to be. That each and every single one of us is a minister, not just Pastor Dan Bolgie or Pastor so-and-so. No, each and every single one of us is. Every single one of us is an integral member of God's team. Every believer has been blessed with a supernatural ability, and if you don't use it, we all miss out. Charismata, the word that's used in the Greek, literally means grace gift. If you think about that for just a moment, it means that you, that I, am a grace gift to others. I think that's a beautiful image, a great description of, of what people can be in our lives. We're grace gifts to one another. And as I said, the pandemic has shifted that, uh, how it works, but the question still remains, like, how does the presence of God in your life affect other people in the church? God's given us spiritual gifts and when we utilize them, God gives us a spiritual gift, singular, of unity. And unity is what I want to talk about this morning. Because there may, there may be no other biggest casualty in our church, in churches in North Bend, Snoqualmie Valley, Washington, the United States, all over the world, uh, Unity has been one of the biggest casualties of the pandemic. And um, there are lots of issues that are pulling us apart as Christians, and especially as a church. And I'm, I'm going to talk about a number of them that have kind of been simmering on the back burner in my mind for a while, and it's like, no, I should really talk about that. I don't, I don't know how or I'm not ready yet. And all of that has kind of coalesced. i got an extra week uh, because of the power outage last week. To, I mean, so you know, I like doubled the length of the message. I'm just kidding. But I've had extra time to just kind of sit and think with this. And uh, some of it related stuff. Others of it is just being a human being stuff. And we need to talk about this. And this is a Holy Spirit moment where this passage of Scripture has just been served up for us at the perfect time. It comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 19. I'm going to read it again, even though we just saw it on the children's message, because we need to soak this in. Here we go. 12, 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part but of many. 
Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So, famous, famous metaphor about God's people that Paul writes here. In fact, it's been so influential that literally ever since, groups of Christians have seen themselves like this. They use the, the terminology, you know, the body of Christ. And that we are a body. And it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the church here in North Bend or the church global, we're collectively the body of Christ. And the reason Paul is teaching this, we can read between the lines here, is that the church in Corinth, the group of people that he's writing to, aren't very united. In fact, they're very divided. They're a mishmash group of people. Uh, they found their way into separate camps within the church, kind of little sub-tribes, and they cannot agree on much. Does this sound familiar? Can I get an amen? Right? Have, have, have we... Have we changed as human beings at all? I don't know. Um, if you look at churches right now in the United States, or groups of Christians, as a whole, we're probably more divided now than at any point in your lifetime. And I inserted the word probably because I felt like I should. Yeah, if you talk to... I mean, yes... My opinion, we are more divided now than at any point in my lifetime. And I hear from pastors older, lots older than me, who say the same thing. And if you talk to pastors, if you talk to Christians, if you read uh, news articles, whatever it might, talk to your neighbors about their church, man, it's nuts right now. It is crazy what is going on uh, at a uh, micro level within each church and really on a macro level, these huge, powerful forces that are affecting all of us uh, everywhere. So a friend of mine sent me an article this week, and it was in The Atlantic. It's by Elizabeth, I'm going to not get her name right, but I think it's Felicetti. And the, the name of the article is, My Church Doesn't Know What to Do Anymore. And the subtitle is, Last year was hard, but at least the answers were straightforward. And some of you laugh because it's like, yeah, that's church. I mean, I've heard this from school administrators. I've heard this from um, people in leadership and different industries. But this is specifically a pastoral, a church experience. And she writes this. She is the pastor of St. David's Episcopal Church. And she says, St. David's, we have this, yeah, here we go. St. David's, the church I've served for 10 years is a genuinely diverse congregation in terms of belief, socioeconomic class, and political views. 
We've weathered the controversy over gay marriage and the political divisions wrought by the 2016 election, but I worry that we won't be able to make it through the rest of the pandemic with our, here's the key words, differing risk tolerances and approaches to masks. I can't find a middle way in these times. And even though Episcopalian churches look a lot different than covenant churches, I read this and I'm like, uh, yes, we are a genuinely diverse group of people with different beliefs, whether that's on the theological spectrum to political spectrum to raising kids spectrum. We are uh, diverse in socioeconomic class, political views, and yet... I'm not sure. And so, we, yeah, we've experienced a lot of ups and downs over the past few years. I'm not so sure about this one. Our differing risk tolerances and approaches to masks. And I've heard this over and over and over and over again from my colleagues in pastoral ministry about the churches they serve from here in Washington to Iowa over and over and over again. And I keep wondering, haven't we discovered new life in Christ? I mean, the early church was dealing with everything from circumcision to huge racial things with Jews and Gentiles to do I eat meat, sacrifice to idols? I mean, huge things. And yet, somehow they made it through all these massively dividing things. And 2,000 years later, here we are sitting here still talking about Jesus because it's His life, His death, His resurrection that's fundamentally altered the way that we relate to God and one another. And I keep thinking like, how much worse is this going to get? Can't we find common ground in Jesus Christ? And it doesn't have to be this way. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, His Spirit comes to live inside, and with that power, you can do hard things. I can do hard things that I couldn't do on my own. That's what God's Spirit does in us. And when we learn to love and serve each other, This little tiny miracle happens. It's called unity. Unity. And the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is when we dwell in unity. It's one of God's sweetest gifts to the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13, those chapters, the Apostle Paul helps us understand how unity is built and how we can get there. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. It's really helpful to understand what unity is and what it's not because unity is often misunderstood. And I think some of us have never actually experienced unity, whether it's in a church or 
in our family or on a sports team or, you know, in a 4-H club or, you know, what, like with a group of people. I don't know how common that sense of unity is. And so it's easy to misunderstand. Unity is togetherness, but it's not uniformity. Unity is solidarity, but it's not conformity. Unity is harmony, not just a collection of solos. You can be unified without having to be the same as the other person. There's so many different angles that you can take to look at what unity is and what it's not. And I feel that so many of us long to find unity, but we misunderstand what it is. You know, a bunch of Christians right now want to find people who think just like them. And I, I get it. it we're, we all feel like we're crazy over the last 18 months. But we want to find people who, is this just me? I'm going to find somebody who thinks just like me. And so, I, and, and it's because we need to have our opinions validated on wearing masks, our vaccine status, the presidential choice that we last made, and the outrage we all feel about the way those other people are managing this pandemic. And so we've brought that into our houses of worship on Sunday morning. And so many people have either left their current church for another, or we've isolated ourselves within our current church with people who think just like us. Guess what? Rallying around an issue of the day might bring a short-term sense of unity, but that's not unity. And it's going to wear off. Maybe the biggest misunderstanding uh, or aspect of unity, uh, at least, and I'm, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I think this is pretty common, is we think unity is an absence of conflict. Conflict in and of itself isn't good or bad. It's just conflict. And when we're talking about human beings, it is a reality of life. It's going to happen. The question is not if we're going to experience conflict, it's when. And I want to push even further and say, how? How are we going to negotiate? How are we going to experience conflict? And this is in church. I mean, it's in our marriages and, you know, parents and kids, siblings, co-workers, whatever. The question is how? And unfortunately, we've decided, at least within churches, that conflict should be avoided at all costs. And I, and I say that now, now knowing other pastors who are not white, that are, that are black, Asian, Hispanic, I've realized that this is kind of a white North American thing, is that we just put the conflict under the carpet. Okay? It can be simmering, but as long as it's not like open hostility with one another, we pat ourselves on the back and we're like, Phew, you know, God be praised. But I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors. Uh, avoiding conflict is a strategy. There's circumstances where that can be utilized, but not all the time. I grew up in a, a family. The family I grew up in uh, wasn't an avoidance of conflict family. My family... In fact, my dad and my sister, I was off on the referee, like between the two of them. Okay, our family, our issue was having to justify why we did what we did. Whether it was right or wrong, it's just, you just had to know why we did it. And that just made it all okay. We all have these different strategies to go negotiating conflict. So 
sometimes helpful, often not helpful. Avoiding conflict at all costs is not helpful. And I had a colleague I used to work with. He would often say to the church on Sunday morning, uh, and I'm going to talk about this because I think this is, I don't know if it's killing us right now, but it's not helping us. So he used to say this. He's like, man, any Sunday, he'd say this to the church, I could split you guys right down the middle with any number of topics that I wanted to, to bring up. And I used to think it was awesome that he said that. And now I don't think so anymore. I, I know what he intended, or at least what I heard was, uh, we're all different people, we could allow our differences on any number of lesser important issues to divide us into different camps. And instead, we're going to find something common in Christ. I know that's what he intended. But now I know what a lot of people heard. They heard him say, I'm not going to make you uncomfortable. I'm not going to make you feel uneasy. I'm not going to challenge you. Sign me up for that church, right? But have you ever read the Bible? There's a lot of challenging things in the Bible. In all of those little books, the minor prophets that none of us ever read, if we're honest. But, you know, we just kind of gloss over and get to the New Testament. Those were written because God kept sending prophets to poke God's people in the eye and say, you're not paying attention. You need to pay attention. And there's different issues that they as a, a people were experiencing and, and it wasn't God's way. So, for us, when it comes to issues of the day like money, racism, human sexuality, homelessness and poverty, or a bunch of other topics that I could bring up, it actually is my job to talk about them as your sister. And my goal is to help us all think biblically about these things. I've gotten direct feedback in the last 18 months a couple of times from people who are like, you, you can't bring that stuff up in church. Why not? It's not my job to build a bubble around you. And I've scratched my head over and over again thinking like, how much influence do I really have? I get 20 minutes of your time each week. How much time do you devote to other sources of media? TV, Facebook, social media, podcasts, uh, articles, books, YouTubers. Never thought I'd have to like, call out YouTubers. Like, competitive business now. I bet it's a lot more than I get. I bet it's a lot more than 20 minutes. How does that influence your opinion? And how much time do all of us devote to allowing God to form and shape us every day? I'm talking about prayer, scripture reading, emotional practices, serving, whatever. 
The reason that we bring things up in church that happen to be in the news cycle, topics that might make all of us feel uncomfortable, I, I feel uncomfortable talking about it sometimes, and I don't do it very often, but it's to help us think biblically. So the next time you're sitting in a corporate training on diversity or racism in the workplace, you're able to engage with the content and think biblically. Stuff that lines up with your faith in Christ and stuff that maybe is just to help their bottom line. I don't know what it is. Think biblically. The reason I bring this up is so the next time that you're in your car with your kids on the way to soccer practice and the topic of human sexuality comes up, you have an informed biblical perspective and a grace-filled perspective. The reason we talk about difficult things in church is so that, you know, the next time you encounter a homeless person, you're filled with Christ's mercy rather than something else. That's why we do this. Avoiding conflict doesn't bring unity. Showing patience, showing grace, serving each other, loving one another, that's what builds unity. And as a church body, we do not have to agree on every issue. But we do have to love one another. And that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul teaching in Corinth. Corinth was a cosmopolitan town in the ancient world. It was like New York and Las Vegas. Sounds like a fun place, right? New York and then I mean, there, anything was possible there. And so imagine that church in that town. It was filled with an incredibly diverse group of people on, on, in any aspect, any background, history, beliefs, whatever. And the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 11, 17 and 18, he says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And so Paul goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper and their practice of it. And it looked very different than our practice of communion. Their practice was to actually gather each week and share a meal together. And it was not like a potluck. It was more like a B-Y-O-M, bring your own meal. And so people would show up at different times. Some would start eating, they'd be finished, and the others got there. Um, uh, there, there was very well wealthy people in this church and very poor people in this church. So some people would have a feast. Others would go hungry. Some people drank too much. I mean, the list goes on and on. You're like, this was a train wreck. Uh, think about like our Thanksgiving celebration and the, what we would associate with that. And imagine if you invited a group of people and they all showed up, you know, but you have to bring your own meal and you just show up and you start eating at a different time. I mean, you would think something was horribly wrong. That's the way Paul feels. And he, he says to them this. He, goes, he says, you are not discerning the body of Christ. You are not discerning the body of Christ. This is before he talks about the whole passage that we, we read. You are not discerning the body of Christ. And what he means by that is, you think you're just a bunch of individuals, but you are a cohesive whole. You are together, one body, many parts. 
And so he basically says, stop acting like individuals and start working together. And if you don't, you're going to suffer God's judgment. That's usually when we read this passage, we're like, oh, judgment? What do you mean by that, Paul? And he says, discern the body, and verse 33 says, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. If you're hungry, eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So through this whole passage, Paul's main point is teaching the Corinthians that when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, when they gather as the body of Christ, they need to celebrate together. And how do you do that? Well, you wait for each other. Rocket science. I, I, I mean, literally, that's what he says. He's like, you should wait for one another. You want to build unity in your church? Like, wait for each other. So as I've been reflecting on this for two weeks now, I mean, I, I haven't really had a hard time finding an application. When we look at our church and the church in the United States, we are so divided on so many, honestly, I, my opinion, non-important things. When you think about the last 18 months, it's an unprecedented time of stress for all of us. Man, we've been doing the best that we can with the information that we have. We've all been trying hard. Um, but as a church, we've had to alter everything from how we worship together on Sundays to how we experience relationships in the body of Christ. And, and I just want it to go back. I wish I could wave a, wave a magic wand over all this and just fix it. But I can't. And I like the words from Pastor Felicetti, but I worry that we won't be able to make it through the rest of the pandemic with our differing risk tolerances and approaches to masks. I can't find a middle way. I can't find a middle way between my congregants who are opposed to being vaccinated and those who are all for it. I can't find a middle way between people who attend our church that see masks as a sign of government oppression and those who won't enter the room if they see someone else without a mask. I can't find a middle way as your pastor between differing risk tolerances that all of us have. I mean, I, I hear from some parents who, you know, the reason that we don't have more kids here is because there's no vaccine available. And so they've decided as a family that they're not coming. I've had people tell me they're leaving our church because they're sick of having their child not have other kids in the classroom and they're going to go find it somewhere else. I, don't, I, can't find a middle, I can't find a middle way. I keep trying. Honestly, I do. But I can do one thing. I can wait. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. Wait for one another. Have patience with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know something else I can do. Phil talked about it last week. I can serve. I can serve others. God's given me a special ability 
It's actually empowered me to do it. It brings me joy when I do. To serve other brothers and sisters. And I can love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This was written to a group of people who couldn't find unity. And if we don't learn to wait for one another, if we don't learn to serve one another, if we don't learn to love one another, there is not going to be many of us left. But through Christ, we can do all things. We can do this. I had a friend tell me, like from last week when we read that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the part that caught their attention was love always hopes, always perseveres. We can do this. We can do this. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we, we come and I... I'm, I don't know like what, what all of us were expecting from this morning in church. Um, but I know that this, this has been on my mind for a long time, it's been on my heart. And I just pray that these, these are your words, not my opinions. And none of this came as a surprise to you, Lord. You knew it was coming. In fact, you even gave us things from your word to help us negotiate it. Whatever it might be, whenever we find differences among each other or in our life or whatever, help us to think biblically, Lord. Help us to submit to you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be grace-filled. Help us to be patient. Help us to love. If it's as simple as just waiting for one another in this, God, I pray that you would empower us to do that. Help us to find ways to serve each other. Help us to find the ability to love. Because we can do hard things through your Son, Jesus Christ, whose life and death and resurrection rescued us from a life of despair and unhope, Lord. And it's given us so much. We get to experience the resurrection life right here, right now, in this time. We don't have to wait till we go to heaven. And that matters. I am so grateful for that, Lord. So help us to do what we need to do to lean into it, Lord, and walk in new life. Pray this in precious name. Ah, <clears throat> uh, these stupid masks. That's <laughs> the truth. You know, you just can't, we're all trying as hard as we can. And I, I, I mean, I've, heard it from so many people just about relational carnage friends that they're not friends with anymore uh, husbands and wives at odds parents and kids i mean and it, there's a better way it doesn't have to be this way 
we, we can, through the power of Jesus Christ, I can show someone I disagree with mercy and grace and patience. I cannot be angered. And especially the people that, that are in the body of Christ and the people that I love in my family. And I haven't always done that well in the last 18 months. The anger button is easily close, and it's an easy out. And we can do better. I can do better. We can all do better. So let's, let's do it. I mean, if it only takes a few people, whether it's a church, uh, I mean, to make a difference in your families, homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, we can do that for the body of Christ, in the name of Christ, for the love of one. So let's do it. Amen? Amen. See you next week.